This is a crisis of hopelessness. And so this speaks much more than just a medical issue. Uh, this is very much a cultural thing that we need to pay attention to and be aware of. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to talk with Dr. Andy Clements about addiction and the opioid crisis. After that, we have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment called Ask the Profs. Now, we received this question from a listener, and Dr. Keithley, I'm going to share this with you and uh, look for your answer here. He says, I'd love to hear Dr. Keithley discuss the current age of post-Christianity. What is it? Why does it matter? How can Christians live faithfully in it? And what are some tangible, everyday examples of the social reality of this post-Christian age? He writes, I'm convinced of much of Charles Taylor's analysis— Yet what's lacking, obviously, is how the church might more wisely and practically engage culture in such an age. That's a big question. And let me boil it down to this. Dr. Keithley, what's going on in the world around us, and how can we in the church engage that world well? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I might rephrase it just a little bit. Rather than asking, are we in a post-Christian age— I think, I think the quick answer on that is the kingdom of God is doing just fine. What we don't want to do is to confuse Christendom with Christianity. And what we are definitely living in is an age that is post-Christendom. Without a doubt, from the t- periods in Europe uh, through the Middle Ages all the way up to the Enlightenment, Christianity was the dominant cultural worldview. And within American culture, uh, this continued on, I think, evangelicalism. I think most historians would agree. Evangelicalism experienced its high point at the time of the Civil War. And then there was a period of decline. And the decline has been all through the 20th century up into this period of time. The thing to remember is we are not to equate um, cultural dominance with the kingdom of God. And, in fact, one could argue very much that it is, a, it is a blessing, maybe a blessing in disguise, maybe a blessing we don't want, but it is actually a blessing to live in a time in which people are not automatically uh, checking the checkbox, yes, I'm a Christian, just for uh, cultural and social reasons. We live in an environment now and a, 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 a uh, social milieu in which if someone is going to call himself a Christian, it will not be to his or her social or economic advantage. It will not be to their cultural advantage. Uh, we live in an environment that if you're going to say, I am a Christian, it could cost you something. I don't find anywhere in the New Testament that that's a bad thing. So uh, I think that there are great resources in both Old and New Testament on how we as believers are supposed to live in exile. Think of everyone from the book of Nehemiah to the book of Esther. 
um, Ezra and Daniel, they, they all talk about how one is to be faithful to God in an environment that is hostile. The whole New Testament is in that type of environment where uh, the Christian uh, religion as it starts out is uh, despised first by the Jewish culture in which it, it was birthed, and then as it moves out into the Roman Empire, by the time the New Testament era ends, we find the apostles are being martyred. What we find is that the apostles themselves point back to the Babylonian exile, especially uh, Peter does this uh, quite explicitly. And we are to understand ourselves as pilgrims living in exile. That's always been true, even during those times in which it looked like the Christian religion dominated whatever cultural situation it was. It's always been true. It's just, it's just very obviously true today. So Christendom is dying, perhaps, but Christianity is not. Oh, the kingdom of God is doing just fine. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Keith Lee, for answering that. And thank you for that listener for that question. One last reminder before we jump into our conversation with Andy Clements. Our upcoming conference is called Exploring Personhood. It's coming on February 10th and 11th. we got an all-star lineup of speakers uh, coming to this conference. Registration starts at just $10. It's an absolute steal for two days of a conference. There are virtual options available as well. So go ahead, reserve your tickets at cfc.scbts.edu or click the link in the show notes. While our attention has been focused on COVID the past few years, another epidemic has been ravaging the country, an opioid epidemic. Indeed, and to help us understand the scope of this problem and to look at potential solutions, we're honored to have with us today, Dr. Andrea Clements. Dr. Clements, who told us earlier, prefers to be called Andy, is professor of Department of Psychology in the Department of Psychology at East Tennessee State University and co-founder and board president of Uplift Appalachia. Her main areas of research include religiosity, health and trauma-related neuropsychological development, particularly focusing on addiction. Dr. Clements, thank you for being with us today. Let's talk about the scope of this problem. I think that many of our listeners may not be aware of just how, just, just the size of this crisis that we are dealing with. How big is this problem? Well, it's it's huge. It's huge. Day to day, it's hard to, to track actual numbers, but the thing that has been tracked for the last several years has been um, overdose deaths, and that is the thing that flashes up in the news often, um, and so that had been trending upwards through the, the like 2010 and beyond had been trending upward. And a lot of that is, is, is made up of opioids. It's not all opioids, but a lot of it is. Um, and the, a large segment of the opioid, the overdose deaths are from opioids, but, but we had been trending up until about 2018, 2019, around 70,000 people a year dying of overdoses. And then it sort of leveled out and a lot of states went ever so slightly down around 2019. But then since the pandemic shut down, I've watched the CDC numbers come out and go up and up and up and up every month because it's, it's, it's time lag. So you get it a little after the fact. And then the, la- the most recent one, so that was almost all pandemic, 
um, came out just in the last few weeks. And in a one year time, it was 100,000 deaths due to overdoses. And so that's a 30% increase in a year, which is just unprecedented. And the thing is, most people don't die of their overdoses. So if you if you translate that up to the number of people that are struggling with addictions of some time, millions, millions, millions of people. Yeah, this is this is um, mind blowing and disheartening. I can remember, uh, like you said, about ten years ago, whenever it went above fifty thousand a year, and we were thinking, "Oh my goodness, a thousand people a week." And then, uh, as it's as it went upward uh, towards the end of, of of the previous decade, and it looked pre-COVID like it was going to ever so slightly, as you say, decline, and then all of a sudden. 100,000 a year, that's 2,000 a week. We're talking about opioids. Walk us through, what is the difference between, say, like Oxycontin, heroin, fentanyl? What are these and, and what are the differences? Okay, well, there, there are a lot of different opioids. And what, what, when we talk about opioids, we talk about our, our bodies have these receptors called opioid receptors. And there are different types of those. I won't get in the weeds there. But, um, but say morphine is like the... You've all heard of morphine, probably. It's like you're given for pain or whatever. And all of these are talked about in morphine equivalents. So anything that is a, an opioid, we talk about its strength and and morphine equivalents. And so morphine, heroin, um, there are several that are just kind of like, this is sort of baseline. It is, it is one of those. And then we have things like fentanyl and carfentanyl, which are exponentially stronger than that. And so um, it, it, it's where, where it might take, let's say, for an overdose to it might take um, a quarter of a teaspoon. I don't know. I don't know my amounts, but, but like a little, a, a little bit of heroin, maybe less than a teaspoon of powder where you have a few grains of fentanyl, the same that that amount could be deadly to someone where it would take a good bit more of heroin. And so what's happened recently is that um, because of world supply and market, it's just economics, um, fentanyl is an efficient way to make drugs more potent. So, so that's mixed in, say you, get, you think you're getting heroin, there may be fentanyl in it. You think you're getting meth, it may have fentanyl mixed in it. You think you're getting cocaine, it may have fentanyl mixed in it. And so so nothing is, is, oh, well, I don't do opioids. I only do this other thing. No, it doesn't matter. And so you're getting something that you don't know that you're getting, and it's very, very strong. And if you're not used to it or tolerant to it, it could be deadly just immediately. You are in um, East Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know the Appalachian Mountains there. I was looking at a map just before uh, we started this podcast, and it shows where the crisis is the most acute. And it seems to be a band that goes from like Pennsylvania down through Tennessee over to Missouri, down through the, uh, to, to New Mexico. There seems to be this uh, area that it's, it's particularly a problem. Why is this? What's going on? There are a lot of people saying a lot of things. I think one of the things when you look particularly at say New Mexico um, I think you, you have a lot of reservations there. You have a lot of you have a lot of poverty there. The same thing with like this little backbone of the Appalachians. We have uh, a lot of West Virginia, Southwest Virginia, 
Northeast Tennessee and Eastern Kentucky is this high need, economically struggling and rural. And I think those go together. One, um, there were, there's been literature that's come out on, on deaths of despair. Overdose is one of those. Suicide is one of those. And it's like this hopelessness that is sometimes associated with us. And, and in our area, not so much in Mexico, but in our area, there was a lot of coal mines closing. Um, there's a lot of coal industry, coal mines closing, a lot of injuries due to working and manual labor, such as, such as mining, but other kinds of manual labor. Um, and so, you know, you might be treating pain originally and so forth, but then there's this sort of desperation that comes with, but now lots of people are unemployed and we have this, you know, my child died of an overdose and now I'm depressed and I'm going to medicate that with something. So it's this sort of cyclical thing. Um, but we also have access and, and this is one of the the really mountainous things that's so interesting to me because we have counties where I don't know if you ter- know the term holler, like a holler mm-hmm. in the mountains. But it's I grew up in the Ozarks. I know okay. the expression very well. <laughs> but a road goes up, but it doesn't go anywhere and it just comes back down. Well, it's very hard to police areas that are just like a little crevice in the mountain with a little road going up there. So, I mean, you think back to the, the 20s and moonshine stills. Well, that's also a good place for manufacturing distribution of things that are illegal because you don't have a workforce that can police that. I'm not saying that policing it is the idea. We can get into that later, but, but, you know, you you can't, you can't Velcro people so that they cannot produce or sell drugs. But, but anyway, that's another thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, this is, this is the interesting uh, aspect or one interesting aspect of this, uh, this situation back when I was uh, a young man in the 60s and 70s, heroin addiction was considered an urban blight, that this is a problem of the inner cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opioid crisis today, I, I, I read that of those 100,000 that are dying every year, the majority of these are from the ages of 25 to 54. 70% of them are men, mostly white males in rural areas. So this is a, 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 and it's interesting to to hear you say that this is a crisis of hopelessness. And so it, it, this speaks much more than just a medical issue. Uh, This is very much a, a, a cultural thing uh, that we need to pay attention to and be aware of. So um, let me just ask one more medical question and then we'll move on to some of those. Why is it that the opioids are so addictive? What is it about them that, uh, you know, say, okay, this is bad. I need to quit. Right, right, right. Um, and that's one of the things I, I really want people to understand. And, and I did not understand. And I don't know if you know this. I, my, my, um, I had a sister who died of um, addiction back in the 90s, in 99. Um, and I was a terrible, I was a terrible family member of an addicted person because I didn't understand it then. And, and so many people don't, which is one of the reasons I want people to understand it. But the way, um, the way opioids work is some people, some people take for medical, medical reasons to treat pain. Some people want to get high. You know, it's like, I love the feeling I've heard people say before, um, you know, the first time I ever used an opiate, I wanted to feel that way forever. It was like a warm blanket. It was like mother love. It, you know, it's just like, it's so amazing. I want this forever. And that's one thing. The thing is that first time or two, yes, you feel that way, but bodies very quickly 
become tolerant to it. And it takes more and more of it to get that feeling or to numb the pain or whatever, whatever reason you're using it, it takes a greater and greater and greater and greater and greater quantity for that. But the thing is, when you don't have that, there's, there's, it doesn't take long at all to get to the point where you are physically dependent on it, meaning that when it is not there, your opioid receptors are starved for that thing. And what happens is we naturally make opioids in our bodies. But if you have these external ones, that shuts down. And so it's like you don't have any. So where you didn't feel pain before, you feel pain now. Even if you weren't taking it for pain, it increases the amount of pain you feel. It makes you sick, it, like sick, physically sick um, in every direction. It makes you hurt. It makes you depressed. And so it feels so terrible not to have it that you have to weather through that to stop using it. But the thing is, if you just take a single dose, you are immediately healed. You are immediately fine. And so trying to combat something like that, the amount of willpower it takes, like if you had the worst flu of your life, you're ready to be hospitalized and you can take a substance and instantaneously you're well, who would not do that? You know, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's fighting against this ridiculously powerful draw, you know? Andy, I want to ask you about, I was, I was curious, the personal side of that. I appreciate you sharing about your sister who passed away. I want to put on my pastor hat for just a minute. I, I serve in a small church, not too far from here. And it occurred to me a few months ago, whereas in, in my upbringing, anytime drugs or warnings against drugs were used, it was always, uh, it was always aimed at the teenagers, right? Avoid drugs, beware of drugs, watch out for people who might offer you drugs or who are drug users. And it occurred to me recently, uh, as I think about my own congregation and their health or perhaps even drug addictions, I probably shouldn't think first of the teenagers or early 20s. I might should think first of the senior adults. Is that a, is that a fair assumption at this point in light of the opioid crisis? I would say think of all of them um, because you can look just fine for a long time. And I think in church, it is so taboo still most of the time to admit there's an issue that it doesn't get found out until it's so far down the road that it's really, really hard to deal with, where if it was more of an open conversation, we know this happens, it could be whatever, because it could be, it could be grandma, it could be, you know, dad going to work, it could be, um, it could be the teenager, hey, I found this in the medicine cabinet, whoever, and if you don't know those potential dangers, and as a teen, the thing with teenagers is it's like they're impervious to any danger. It's like, oh no, I'll be fine. <laughs> you know, where at least adults kind of have a sense of hmm, this might not be a good idea. But but even adults, so many have very innocently gotten addicted to things because that until just recently. It was, oh, got to stay on top of that pain. Here's how it's supposed to be prescribed. And even there's still a lot of physicians that if that is their protocol on their sheet, oh, when this happens, give them this. And they, you know, and we just kind of blindly follow, oh, well, they've done the science. We must need to do this. And so you've got a bunch of folks unwittingly becoming addicted or getting someone else addicted, thinking they're doing right. You know, so it's it's not like the evil drug dealer down the street that's slipping this into your tea. So it's not that. Yeah, I mean, it might happen once in a blue moon, but but most of it is pretty just kind of 
people bumble into it. You know? yeah. So what are the markers? What kind of things should we as, as brothers and sisters in Christ or as pastors, what should we look for, especially some of those early signs? What kind of things should we look for there? There are a lot of different things, but like if somebody has periodic sick days, like, oh, I feel, feel bad. I've got the flu again, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I can't go today because I'm really, or, or my, the, the mom says my kid is on the couch and they won't get up and they're really, um, you know, they get angry or, or cash missing, you know, like, oh, I thought I had a $20 bill and it's gone or just, Hey, I, I, I really need some money for gas. I, I ran out. What Those little kinds of things tend to be noticeable. Or if you say, Hey, honey, you haven't seemed like yourself lately. And they get mad. Um, that anger, because because what happens is, and, and you think about it, this is the person that's going to be desperately sick and they don't have a thing, they, be, they begin to protect their ability to have access. And it can be very simple or it can be super complicated plans that come up. But, um, but I think a lot of it is that just like really rapid mood changes, like they're fine or, or like they're in a grumpy mood and they go to the restroom and they come back fine. That's a biggie. <laughs> so inconsistencies, both behaviorally, emotionally, financially, any of those kinds of things could be markers where we shouldn't immediately draw assumptions, but maybe begin asking a few more questions and looking a little deeper into these things. Right, right, right. So what would you say to a local church? What would be some of the things that perhaps we could be doing as congregations in terms of being informed, of, of taking action? What 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 should be the mission of the church and local churches in this uh, matter? I think some of it is just acknowledging that it's a huge thing. It, it's a huge. I mean, it's so funny because we started out, and we'll talk. I know about our nonprofit some, but we started out sort of blindly. If we just let people know the need, the church is going to rally around, and we can mobilize them, and they're gonna they're gonna take this on. And we heard a lot of, oh, that's not an issue in our congregation. And you try not to laugh as you hear that. Um, and, or, um, um, you know, if they just, if they just pray harder, Jesus is going to take care of this. Um, he can, I absolutely believe he can. Will he always know, <laughs> you know, um, and there's been, um, oh, we're, we're handling it, whatever, but, but it's, but the thing is, I think if it can be, particularly from the pulpit, but also the way people are, it's like, we know this is an issue. It is very likely it's going on here. We know it's ridiculously hard, hard for the family, hard for the person. Um, and we would much rather, you know, have it out in the open and be able to work through together um, than to keep it hidden because things that are hidden are not going to change. And, and there's just so much people will draw away from the church. If they start having to hide it, they will hide from the church too. Um, but, but the other thing is people that have, you know, I mentioned that your opioid receptors are being filled. Well, that's a really natural thing that happens like in bonding with your mother as a baby, or when you're in love with someone, or you have fun, or you run a marathon, all those things fill your opioid receptors, and that feels good. Um, once you're filling those receptors with any kind of opioid, and that's even treatment medications, then you stop seeking that connection with other people. 
And so that's some of that drawing away is it's built, it's built. I'm good because I've got my thing. I don't need another person. And so, so in order to even help that person, we're going to have to pursue them. You know, I think of them, you know, you got the, the hundred sheep and you, the one strays, you leave the 99, you go pursue. We're going to have to, as the church, do the pursuing because they don't want to be pursued. You know, they don't, that, that's just not a thing. And it's not just because they're, some of it might be shame and some of it might be guilt and things like that. Some of it's physical. It's just like a need I had, I don't have now. Their need becomes, I am in love with the substance. I need to protect the relationship with the substance and you're going to be getting in their way. And so, so as the church, and I think the church is the only people that will do that. You know, it's like most people, if there's not someone coming back without the Holy Spirit, Where's the motivation to go pursue someone that doesn't want to be pursued? You know, there's no two directions there. And so I think the church needs to be prepared for it's going to be hard and there's not going to be a lot of payoff, maybe in heaven, but right here, there may not be much payoff, but we're loving those people that are not going to get it anywhere else and won't, won't, um, pay you back in that right now and so it, it really is it really is truly altruistic andy there's a good chance that someone even listening to this podcast uh, may be struggling with an addiction mm -hmm. to opioids uh, and maybe they haven't shared with anyone or maybe they're just wrestling with what to do what would you say to that person I would love to say, reach out to a church that will understand this and love you and bring you in and that is what i'm trying to build um, <laughs> but but to i guess not lose hope it's like it can be better that's the thing when you're in it it's like i don't see a way out and i'm gonna get shamed and it's all my fault and things like that and i think it's the, this sort of balance of yes you are doing actions that are wrong and hurtful and harmful but it's also understandable why you are doing those things and so to just find someone who can talk through some of the the um the where you are and what you can do and so forth a lot of communities now have certified peer recovery specialists and one of the things that i found here and that's somebody who has has lived with an addiction but has been trained on you know a lot of the resources and treatments and things like that and one of the things that i found that has amazed me is a lot of our cprs is here are believers and it's like and, you know, I, I haven't done the study yet, so I don't know if it's like, oh, the people who recover might have found God, <laughs> you know, that may be it, that may be it. But um, the thing is, it's not just somebody who can hand you the pamphlet, it's somebody who has lived through it and come out the other side. And I think that is hugely important. I think there's some great um, recovery meetings, recovery meetings, the 12-step meetings. A lot of those are really good. We know they're very effective. There's some that I, I like that are very biblically based. Um, and so like um, Celebrate Recovery, um, Regeneration, um, Living Free, there's some of those that that were, where AA was was based on, a, you know, God or your higher power. And it was basically biblical. And the, concept, the concepts in it are quite biblically focused. Um, I like the people that use real Bible for it, but, but so I think CPRS is and um, and 
a good 12 step program are good places now. And now if it's at the point where it's the, I don't even know if I have a problem, that's okay. That's okay. A 12 step program will, it will let you, you don't have to prove your addiction in order to be, to be accepted there, you know? Uh, but I think having people that have been through and, and are doing better, you know, um, is, is really helpful. And even having like, you could, one of the things that we're trying to do here now is have some of the, the CPRSs come into the churches just to kind of be available. It's like, you know, not, not even to teach or preach, just it's like identify them as here's a person that could be a resource for you. And, you know, especially if there's like maybe a, an anonymous way that, where you don't have to say, hi, pastor, can I talk to the CPRS or whatever? But, but, but the, a way to get to that person without everybody knowing yet, that would be maybe a safe way to do it. But, but just having somebody that, that knows that can, can be a resource is good. Well, tell us about Uplift Appalachia. Several years ago, this became a passion of mine. But it's like, oh, the church would be a great army to try to address this problem. And so I just started praying, okay, Lord, maybe how, how do we do that? And then uh, a fellow came to me and said, hey, we're trying to mobilize the church to address addiction. I was like, yes, Lord. <laughs> and we'd like you to help us do that. So we ended up having this summit of faith community and experts in addiction and trauma. And we had a, an event back in May of 2018. And this was folks from Duke. They wanted to come here, help poor Appalachia that was, you know, falling apart. But we had that and then didn't really know what we were going to do. It's like, okay, we did that. And that was great. And people loved it. And so we had two days of education and people walked away with some education. And so ended up writing a grant. I ended up writing a grant. And we got um, a federal grant, which was amazing, a federal grant to basically pull churches together and pray and do ministry. And it's like, okay, this is a God thing because that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, so, so we started another organization that was called uh, the Holy Friendship Collaborative. And <clears throat> one thing led to another and, and Uplift was, was kind of an offshoot of that. We, were, we had planted a church in a high need area and we began being mobilized. And so our originally Uplift Appalachia was the mobilization of the church and we were gonna do transportation, um, housing and job readiness. But then several things led to the Holy Friendship Collaborative dissolving and they just kind of gave their mission to us too. So now we're, <laughs> we're the, um, we're, we have the mobilization pieces, the, the actual tangible, here's a transportation program. But what really has become our mission and the need, need, need that we gradually found to be true is the ability to be a liaison between the faith community and the healthcare community and the scientific community to sort of translate each other to each other. So some of what we do is like training in like origins of addiction from the physiological stuff we talked about to, to kind of the economy of what goes on in real society and how families interact and how the church can, can be inserted in that and those sorts of things, how being raised in a traumatic environment can actually change your brain to make it more likely that you might be more likely to struggle with addiction, things like that, how we can address that later, those sorts of things. And also just consulting with groups, like helping, we've just been recently asked to probably do some training with physicians who prescribe and pharmacists who fill prescriptions to know what their resources are within the faith community in their own areas. And so, so instead of just here's a prescription, 
go and be well. It, it's more, let's try to say this might be risky, but here are some support things in your community and help them understand how the church might be able to come alongside as part of that support community. So it's almost like being a go-between between all of these groups that haven't really talked to each other before. Dr. Clements, uh, thank you for explaining uh, what sounds to me to be an essential ministry. And thank you for talking to us uh, to help us be aware of something that truly is a, a dire need in our culture today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for another edition of On My Bookshelf, the part of the podcast where Drs. Quinn and Keith Lee tell you what they are reading right now. So, Dr. Keith Lee, today, what's on your bookshelf? Mark Knoll is one of the premier historians in the United States. It just so happens he is also a Christian who writes from the perspective of the evangelical faith. A book of his that I have read recently, uh, read it in the fall, is his book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. As he points out, evangelicalism had reached the high point in the 1840s and 1850s. There were uh, many more evangelicals in 1850 than there was even at 1776, whenever the United States became a uh, country, a nation. Um, however, it is at this time that evangelicalism fails catastrophically in that you have Baptists split, not just only Baptists, but Methodist denominations split north and south over the issue of slavery. And uh, Mark Knoll points out how both sides, both north and south, claimed to have biblical warrant for their positions. As an evangelical, as a Baptist, I affirm sola scriptura, that the scripture is sufficient for all matter, uh, matters of faith and practice. But what this book demonstrates is that it's not enough to simply affirm sola scriptura uh, and are to give simply lip service to the authority of scripture. But one must apply that truth very carefully because if you don't, it is easy to use the Bible to proof text whatever it is to your advantage. And that is what tragically happened uh, during this period of time. It's a compelling read. It's very helpful, especially for pastors who are trying to, to know how best to, to work through the doctrine of sufficiency and how best to apply it uh, to, to their, their ministry in everyday life. That sounds like an excellent book, Dr. Keithley. Thank you for recommending that. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy the Christ and Culture podcast, take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a brief review. 
Seems like a really small step, but it goes a long, long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.